just decided to do a little message that we're calling Anonymous for God. Uh, first week was the disciples, and we saw that the, the disciples were an illustration of the problem. And we noticed that all through the three-year ministry that our Lord had on earth, his disciples had this ongoing argument amongst themselves as to which one of them was the greatest. And we were saying that that's basically an illustration of what's wrong uh, with virtually all of us in the Christian life, that a lot of times uh, we're more interested in bringing attention to ourselves and glory to ourselves than we are to bringing attention and glory to Jesus. Actually, in the, the song we sang just before uh, I came up, notice it said, uh, I'm learning the art of losing myself in giving you praise. And that's kind of, a, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And all through... Our Lord's ministry, the disciples had this issue, arguing over who was the greatest instead of just bringing glory to the one who is the ultimate great. Then, then last time in October, we looked at Abraham moving toward a solution, and we saw that Abraham uh, believed God, and that was the greatest thing about this man and the greatest thing that any of us can do uh, as we go through our lives as believers. And Abraham was interested in, in knowing God and in getting all of his self-worth, his self-esteem, uh, his... Um, his abilities in ministry, he was happy to just know God better by carrying those things out. So we're moving toward a solution with Abraham. And today, I want to try to say that Jonathan helps me at least, and I hope you guys, helps me as an illustration of the solution. What does it really look like to live anonymously for God? What kind of a person is actually able to do that? And I want to suggest to you that Jonathan is just such a man. Father, thanks so much for life and breath for another day on planet Earth. Thanks for the privilege of gathering together uh, to worship you and around your word. And Lord, we just ask as the, as the few moments that we're here, we do want to quiet our hearts. We do want to know you better. So help us to leave all the anxieties, all the fears that we bring in here. Help us to just mentally put them outside for this short time and to draw closer to you. Make us better people. Make us more like Jesus because we were here today. Amen. So real simple outline this morning. Jonathan is willing to do whatever God wants him to do. He's willing to be whatever God wants him to be. And he's willing to go wherever God wants him to go. And uh, if you have your smartphones, you can open the First Samuel uh, chapter 13 and 14. That's where we're going to actually begin. I'm going to read one verse from First Samuel 13, verse 22. Uh, and then drop down to uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. 1 Samuel thirteen twenty-two. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. And a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. Let me pause there and say the story that we're about to read, the story we're about to look at, uh, to me, is every bit as miraculous, every bit as great, every bit as thrilling as the story of David and Goliath. And yet, very few people are even familiar with it. I would even venture to say that there'd be a number of you here this morning that this is the first time you're ever going to read this story. But it's absolutely amazing. And I want to suggest to you that it illustrates the character, it shows the character of a man who is every bit as passionate for God and every bit as courageous as David was, and yet every bit as pure and as integral as Daniel and Joseph were. An amazing man. Look what he does 
1 Samuel 14, beginning in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross, it's called the Pass at Michmash, if you ever go there. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One side was called Bozes and the other Sinai. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other one to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young arbor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by few or by many. Do all that is, do all that you have in mind, as armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then. We'll cross over to the, we'll cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we'll stay where we are and not go up. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistine, Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. So the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. And you're going to see God is definitely involved here because that's Jonathan's cue right there. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. You get the picture? There's a whole group of men that come after him. Jonathan, one by one, is taking these guys out. Not necessarily killing them dead, but basically uh, incapacitating them. And his armor bearer is coming behind and finishing them off. A little gory, I know. Um, Verse 14, in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Verse 15, then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and in the field, that is the Philistine army, and the outpost and the raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. I stood in this exact spot uh, at the pass of Michmash, you can see it here. This isn't, it's the best photo I could find. It's not a great one. Um, but when I stood there and realized that Jonathan actually crossed from the side nearest me here, uh, it goes down 100 to 130 feet, extremely steep, extremely treacherous. He, he goes down that with armor, with shield, with sword. He and his armor bearer climb down the one side, cross, uh, it doesn't say so in the text, but this is basically a dry riverbed. Um, it's called the Wadi Suanit. And the Wadis in Israel are typ- typically dry about nine months of the year. So he goes, climbs down to one side, crosses over the dried riverbed, and then climbs up the other side, which in itself, when you stand there, you know that God was involved in this. He had to be. I couldn't make that climb. I couldn't have made it then in 92. I can't make it now for sure. But that's, that's what they do. And what, what's happened is, uh, there's a long stretch in, in the land of Israel. It's called the Central Ridge Route. Israel um, is, is basically shaped something like this. 
This is the west, this is the east side, and then north and south. It's shaped like this. So on this side, you go downhill through a hilly country to the Mediterranean on the west, and this side, you go downhill through very rocky wilderness uh, to the Jordan River on the east. And this area in the middle is flat. For about 80 miles, it's only a mile wide, starting in the north in a little town called Bet-Shan in the Megiddo Valley, and it comes all the way south uh, through Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and finally to Hebron. It ends around Hebron. And most of that stretch, it's only a mile wide. But you get this one spot just above Israel where it widens out, and it's about four miles by four miles. Um, it's called the Central Benjamin Plateau. And Michmash is right on the northeast corner of the Central Benjamin Plateau. And the Philistines, Saul had a lot of faults as a king, but the Philistines... Uh, had made their way up from the hilly Shvela, or valley area, onto the central ridge route. And Saul had managed, through most of his career, he had managed to keep them uh, in the lowlands and along the coast, the Philistines, uh, very actively pursuing them and protecting the people of Israel. Did a great job of that. But in this case, he's in decline. Spiritually, he's in decline. And, and, as, and as a leader. And the Philistines have come up out of the Shvela, out of the lowlands, the coastal lands, right onto not just the central ridge route, but onto the central Benjamin Plateau, a key area in the defense of Israel. So it's, Israel is very, very threatened by where the Philistines are. And they're poised to strike Jerusalem itself, and Saul isn't exactly helping matters right now. Jonathan uses, notice he uses the term when he's about to attack these guys. He says, let us go over to those uncircumcised men. You remember that in verse 6? When Jonathan says that, um, in our politically correct day, he would probably uh, be accused of being a, a Philistinophobe or what, however you would say it. I don't know. But Jonathan doesn't mean it as a racial slur. What he's talking about is the Philistines are actively opposing the plans and purposes of God in the world. They are God's enemies, and therefore they're Jonathan's enemies. So when he says, let's go across to these uncircumcised, what he means is it's kind of a spiritual slur, if I could put it that way. What he means is these guys are God's enemies, so they're my enemies, they're Israel's enemies, and we're going to attack them. Not a, not a racial thing, but a spiritual thing going on. Now, Jonathan is the crown prince. He's Saul's eldest son. So it doesn't kind of surprise us that he's doing this, but what is a surprise is Saul's nowhere around. Where is Saul while this is going on? Well, uh, they tell us in verse 2 of chapter 14 where Saul is. I'm going to read beginning in uh, 1 Samuel 14, 2. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phidias, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was even aware that Jonathan had left. Now, when it says uh, that Ahijah was there... And he's the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest. It sounds like he's describing about three people, but it's one person. It's this guy, Ahijah. Now, normally when you give a person's lineage, and this guy was acting as the priest, he's wearing an ephod. 
when you're given a lineage of someone, it's fine to mention their father, grandfather, even great-grandfather. And that's, that's what happens here. We're told that Ahijah's uh, father uh, was a Hittub, that his grandfather uh, was Eli. But Samuel also decides to tell us who his uncle was. Genealogically, there's no point to that. Why would he do that? Well, the only reason is because of the guy's name, Ichabod. Anybody know what Ichabod means? The glory has departed. Yeah, no glory. It actually literally means no glory. The glory has departed. Now, Saul has already been told by Samuel that the Lord has disqualified him from being king of Israel. You, the Lord has, has counted you out. You're done. You're finished. So the contrast here is here's Saul, the the no-glory king of Israel, the one from whom God has departed, and he's sitting with Ahitub, a priest from the line. Anybody remember the story of Eli and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas? That was, that was Ahijah's grandfather. And his uncle is Ichabod. So here's a priestly line that is defunct as far as God is concerned. has been completely disqualified. There's no glory. And he's sitting with the king with no glory. So here's the no glory twins. And the Lord has departed from both of them. And in contrast, and Samuel's giving us a contrast here. In contrast, here's Jonathan who is actively pursuing God's enemies and Israel's enemies and taking out 20 Philistines single-handedly. And the Lord, unlike Ahijah, and unlike Saul, the Lord is very much with Jonathan. Incredibly so, miraculously so. I would even suggest to you that at this point, with Saul being deposed by God, that, uh, that Jonathan is really the de facto king of Israel at this point. God always has a leader for his people. And since Saul has been disqualified, somebody has to lead. And I would suggest to you that that's Jonathan at this point. Um, churches consider interim pastors. I would almost argue Jonathan is kind of the interim king here. But as he does this incredible thing, dispatching 20 Philistines single-handedly, you know, there's not a single person there but his armor bearer to witness it. Unlike his friend David, who a few months later is going to uh, attack and kill Goliath in front of thousands of people, Jonathan does something, in my view, just as miraculous, maybe more so, and there's nobody there, nobody but his armor bearer. But you know what? That doesn't matter to Jonathan. He could care less. He's not in it for his glory. He's in it for God's glory. He's willing to be anonymous. He doesn't need anybody to know. Jonathan is willing to do whatever God wants him to do. Secondly, he's willing to be whatever God wants him to be. Fast forward a few chapters. We're in 1 Samuel 14. Fast forward to chapter 17, where the famous incident we just talked about actually happens. David kills Goliath. And when he comes back from killing Goliath, he has a talk, an interaction with Saul, the king. Let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 57. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Now chapter 18 and verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, 
Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Incredible statement. Verse 2. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. You know, keep in mind now, Saul is, I'm sorry, Jonathan is the crown prince of Israel. He's Saul's eldest son. He is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And he knows that. He knows that. So wouldn't you think, I mean, just think of the way our world is. Do you just, do you just hand things over like that? You know, it, there, there's a spirit of competition that exists in our world that I guarantee you existed 3,000 years ago when this happened. And if I'm Jonathan, I'm watching David come back, holding the hand of the Philistines. I think I'd burst into the scene while he's talking to Saul and say something like this. You know, so what, punk? You know, good for you. You killed a big 10-foot goon. Why weren't you there a couple months ago over in Mi'kmash? I dispatched 20 of these goons. You know, what's harder, killing one big guy or 20 normal-sized men? I'll take on the big guy, thanks. Little punk. You don't know your place. Get over That's That's what you would think from the crown prince, right? Who, by our standards, has just been showed up, shown up by a, by a teenage shepherd boy. But that's not what happens, is it? That's not happened. That doesn't happen because Jonathan's willing to do whatever God wants him to do. He's willing to be whatever God wants him to be. And you know, 20 years ago, Janine and I were searching for a name for our newborn son. And it led us, the character traits in this man led us to what we finally named our son, Jonathan. He's, he's an amazing example of what it means to want to be everything that God wants you to be, but not one bit more. And to be completely submissive to any change in plans that the Lord might have. Willing, truly willing to be anonymous for him. And part of me wants to say, I love that side of him, but another part of me feels bad for him. I want to say, Jonathan, you're the crown prince. Come on, boy. Stand up for yourself. You know? Show him what you, you showed him what you were made up back in Micbeth. Show him here today. Don't just take this lying down. But Jonathan's not going to have any of that. No, no, no. God's choice is clear. He wants David to be the next king. So Jonathan freely takes off his robe, the symbol of the, of the of the chair, the symbol of the royal chair, the symbol of the king, the rightful heir of the throne of Israel, and just gives it to David. He just surrenders it right there. Gives it all to a stinky little shepherd boy. And think about it. Here's a guy, here's a young man, Jonathan, probably in his mid-20s at this point. Physically extremely intimidating, as tough as they come. I think every bit as tough as David, who slew his thousands. I think Jonathan's just as much of a bad dude. Spiritually, as close to God as they come. He has the respect not only of the people of Israel, but of the army of Israel. 
He's, he's qualified in every way. You've got to love this guy. And yet he freely hands everything over. Freely. And I want you to notice something else. Notice that David receives the kingdom, not from Saul. Because frankly, at this point, it's not Saul's to give. He receives the kingdom from Jonathan as Jonathan hands over his royal robe. You know, a number of years ago, there's a, there's a group called the Association of Theological Schools, ATS. I actually meant to bring this to our next transition team meeting, Bob. Uh, and ATS, a number of years ago, it's fairly dated, probably late 90s, around 2000, they conducted a survey of traits that the average church member likes to see in a pastor. And they came down with nine traits. I'm going to do the David Letterman style here. I'm going to go from nine down, all right? Trait number nine, willing to acknowledge mistakes and limitations. Number eight, able to handle pressure. (laughs) Number seven, a theologian. Number six, perceptive counselor. Number five, able to build rapport with others. Number four, completes tasks. Number three, good Christian example. Number two, strong personal integrity. And the number one qualification or character trait the church members like to see in their pastor Willing to serve without concern for public recognition. Isn't that interesting? In other words, the majority of church people in this ATS survey want a pastor who's willing to be anonymous for God. He's willing to do whatever God wants him to do, be whatever God wants him to be. And lastly, they're looking for someone who's willing to go wherever God wants wants them to go. And that's Jonathan here too. Fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 31, if you would. Before I start reading there, you know, Jonathan and Saul are about as polar opposite, I think, as any father and son could be. Um, Saul isn't so much concerned with being God's king as he is with just being king. He's not concerned with what God wants in terms of the next king or even in terms of his own behavior. He's concerned with what he thinks is right. And Jonathan is exactly the opposite. Jonathan wants whatever God wants. And he suffers the humiliation, think about this, of having his own father try to kill him at least two times, once publicly, 1 Samuel 20, the humiliation of having his own father kill, try to kill him at least two times for the simple reason that he's committed to obeying God and to doing what God wants instead of what his father tells him to do. Saul spends the last couple years of his life trying desperately to kill the man that he knows God has selected to be the next king of Israel And his son, Jonathan, conversely, spends that two-year period doing everything he can to protect David and to make sure that David actually gets to come to the throne. 
So again, they're polar opposites. And the real difference, guys, listen, the real difference is that unlike his father, Jonathan is very willing to be completely anonymous for God. That's the difference. Jonathan is a faithful servant of God, a faithful friend to David, and a faithful son to Saul. I don't think Saul, frankly, deserved the loyalty and the love and the respect that Jonathan continues to show him, but nonetheless, Jonathan does it. Notice 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 and 2. We're up in the Megiddo Valley, and Israel is once again at war fighting the Philistines. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them. I think, again, here's a clear example that Saul is a leader that has been rejected by God, and therefore the Israeli army, the Israeli people are suffering because they're under the leadership of a man that's been disqualified by God, and therefore they meet with catastrophe. The Israelites fled before the Philistines, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed Jonathan. For me, one of the saddest lines in Scripture And then you probably know the rest of the story that Saul sees there's no, he's wounded and he sees there's no help for him. So he falls on his own sword, committing suicide. Jonathan's a faithful son to Saul, who, as I said, frankly, isn't worthy of his son's loyalty. And yet... Jonathan's selfless life, why is it, why is it, I couldn't figure out for the longest time, why do I find this guy so appealing? Why is it that he touches my heart so deeply? And I finally realized quite a number of years ago, actually around the time that our son Jonathan was born, Jonathan is so appealing to me, I think, because of who he reminds me of. His selfless life reminds me of another man who was also a prince, the son of a king, And this man, like Jonathan, was willing to lay aside his royal robes and become a servant. This man, like Jonathan, was denied the privilege of reigning over his kingdom, over his father's kingdom, even though though he was the crown prince. And this man, like Jonathan, was a faithful son to his father, even to the point of death. Death on a cross. And this man, like Jonathan, emptied himself and made himself, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, of no reputation. This man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is who Jonathan reminds me of. You know the funny thing, though? Jonathan is committed to being anonymous for God, but the funny thing about anonymous people is that God doesn't allow them to stay anonymous indefinitely. I want to take you to an incident before we close. In 1 Samuel 23, you'll remember David is once again fleeing from the homicidal rage of Saul, and he's hiding. He's hiding in a cave, and... Jonathan goes to him, 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish, 
and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just keep thinking about it. The crown prince, here's the guy who's taking his crown and is going to be the next king. Don't be afraid. Everything's going to be all right. My father Saul, now listen to this. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And you know, you think, well, okay, uh, Jonathan's a great guy. He's a great crown prince. He would have made a great king. He's a great man spiritually, personally, friendship-wise, son-wise, everything. But he's not a prophet. I mean, come on, give the guy a break. And two out of three ain't bad, you know. Saul never did lay a hand on David. David did come to the throne. You will be king over Israel, Jonathan told him. And that happened. But what about that third prophecy? And I will be second to you. Just a short time later, Jonathan's killed in battle on Mount Gilboa. Well, think ahead with me a little bit, if you would, because in Ezekiel chapter 37 and in Jeremiah chapter 30, we are told that David will rule over all of Israel in God's millennial kingdom. For those of you who are premillennials, he will rule over God's millennial kingdom. And it doesn't say so, but I believe with all my heart that that's where Jonathan will be proved to be a prophet on top of all the other good things he is. Because I really believe with all my heart that when David returns and rules and reigns from Jerusalem over all of Israel, that Jonathan will be second to him just like he prophesied in 1 Samuel 23. Janine embroidered, when Jonathan was born, she embroidered a little um, thing that we framed and put on the wall in his room with his name on it, Jonathan. And a few of these verses. And then this verse from 1 Peter. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The funny thing about anonymous people, God doesn't let them remain anonymous indefinitely. So Peter and Jonathan's whole life are saying, Don't ever try to be, and this is our prayer for our son, don't ever try to be any more than God wants you to be. Don't try to be any less, but don't try to be any more. Be content with whatever God wants you to do. Be content to be whatever God wants you to be. Be content to go wherever God wants you to go, and then leave it all up to him from there. That's been our prayer for him his whole life, and that's my prayer for you guys this morning. Father, we thank you for the the amazing example of the life of this man, Jonathan. And we ask you to help us in spite of our sinful nature. Lord, I ask you to help me in spite of my sinful nature to be willing to be anonymous for you, to do what you want me to do, to be what you want me to be, and to go where you want me to go. We'll trust you for the ultimate outcome in Jesus' name. Amen.